0: Welcome back to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. I'm Anthony Walsh, and this is a Founder Series. I'm thrilled to welcome Kwok Pham, the founder of Kwok Shoes, to the podcast today. Kwok has been innovating and in setting new standards in the world of cycling footwear. Today, we're going to hear Quark's fascinating journey from escaping war-torn Vietnam the inception of his idea, the challenges he's overcome, and the insights he's gained, and what fuels this relentless pursuit to provide the perfect cycling shoes. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today.
1: You know, I wake up every morning now, pinching myself how lucky I am. You know, every morning I wake up, I have a routine where I show appreciation that I get to live another day. It sounds a bit deep, but I am quite spiritual, Anthony. I'm not religious, but I am spiritual you pay a very expensive bike or you can pay for a stem which costs about 300 bucks but yet you skin power on a pair of shoe which costs the same price but yet that shoe will give you so much more enjoyment or so much more enhanced your whole experience on the bike but at the same time my sheer ignorance maybe that's a positive thing that i don't i don't take a no for an answer and i always think there's a way around things you know if i if i were to work with you know, some supplier was and I suggest just some ideas the people say no you can't do this you can't do that or try constantly nagging and constantly this way eventually they're doing and it, it can be done
0: Quack! welcome to the roadman cycling podcast thank you for having me Anthony thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule
1: right, it's always good to talk so looking forward to the show
0: When I was younger, my dad was in the army and my mom was, she was a stay-at-home mom. So cash and money, it was always a topic of conversation in my house because it was always tight. And I remember my dad started a side business to make some extra cash. So we'd have money for runners and things that kids want to spend money on. And he started building bikes in our garden shed and selling them. And he painted them all the exact same color. I still remember I had dinner with him yesterday and I remember taking the piss out of him. I was like, why did you paint every single bike the same color? It was this like Coventry City sky blue color. But I can remember just being hypnotized by those bikes and just thinking, I can't wait to get on one of those bikes. It was the freedom and the independence that that bike represented that I was just yearning for it as a kid. Can you remember that first moment when you became aware of bikes?
1: Yeah, um, about five years old. I chased my brother. My mum and dad bought us a red bike in Vietnam, and I was a little bit younger. Uh, He was um, so, of course, been an older brother. He is. He just stole the bike, and I just constantly running after him. Was this beautiful red bike? And I always wanted to go, and I never had it. And we only had it for uh, a short while before we had to leave Vietnam. Um, escape Vietnam. So uh, that was my first memory. And ever since then, I was always
0: yearning for a bike. What was going on with your, as you say, escape Vietnam? What was the circumstances that led to that?
1: It was the Vietnam War. You know, after the Vietnam War, of course, it's, I wasn't born all that happened. My mum, dad, um, when the communists took over, they were like, um, you know, they was getting married, et cetera. And when I grew up in that kind of environment, it was not safe. Everyone was hungry, starving. Um, and my dad didn't see this as a future for us, so he decided to get us out of Vietnam. And that time, it was around about 1970, something, uh, 1980. Um, there was a lot of boat people at that time. And him and his friend scrapped some money together, got a wooden fisherman boat, trying to get out uh, to give us a better uh, better opportunities.
0: Is your dad still alive?
1: Yeah, he is still alive. Uh, all my family's in UK at the moment. Uh, it's an amazing story how that happened. Uh, one of the boat we missed is my uncle and auntie, they went on that boat and we could make it somehow, I don't know why we did, we missed that boat, and they were in the sea and they got picked up by a British Shell oil tanker, which took them straight to the UK. And that's the reason why we're in the UK, because we have relatives there already. So we made us, it was our turn, the third time attempt that we went through. Luckily, my dad was good at navigation and math, we went straight to Malaysia <laughs> um trip to Malaysia, we have plenty of food and water left on the boat, etc. You know, there's there's lots of horror story where you know there's pirates and there's people lost their ways, etc. But we were lucky; we got there in a few days. And the Malaysian government put us on. There's a separate island for refugee people, and we were there. And I grew up three years of my life on a tropical island, swimming, running on the beach, you know, climbing trees, picking fruits, getting bitten by red ants, and that was that was three years of my life. Um, completely uh, unrestrained.
0: Your dad's an amazing man.
1: He is, both of them. And they work hard. And when he got to the UK, they just had
0: to start from scratch. Do you have those, I've often talked on the podcast with people who've had difficult childhood experiences. And it seems like when people have traumatic childhood experiences, it can go two ways. It can be an excuse to justify maybe inactivity or a vulnerability in themselves later in life. Or it can be like their superpower, where now they have this reference point and say, okay, the business has not gone well, but catch yourself on. This isn't as bad as the time where we had to flee our native country, get on a boat that my dad built, go to another island. This is a small road bump. This isn't a big problem. I can overcome this. How has those childhood experiences impacted you as an adult?
1: Good question. I don't know. Uh, it made me, don't give up on things. It made me pre- appreciate a lot of more. You know, I don't think that's uh, a negative thing. I think the whole experience has made me a more, uh, I say more, you know, I can really appreciate growing up in the UK. You know, if I had stayed in Vietnam, we'd never had the opportunity of going to school, secondary school, going to college, etc. So, you know, I wake up every morning now pinching myself how lucky I am. You know, every morning I wake up, I have a routine where I show appreciation that I get to live another day. It sounds a bit deep. I am quite spiritual, Anthony. I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. You know, when I came to the UK, going to secondary school, I was ashamed of where I came from. I didn't understand it, you know? I want to be fit in. I want to fit in with all the other kids. But we had a very background, different background. In that school, we was like a handful of Asian kids and all the rest was just a predominantly white school. And I just want to fit in. I didn't want to be different. Um, and I always... People ask me, you know, a set to this story, where you come from. So I always kind of avoid it, you know. But now I embrace it. You know,
0: this, this is who I am. And it's what makes your story unique. You know, the story of Quok and, you know, it's gone on to be this amazing brand. But without that origin story, it's a totally different brand. It's a totally different vision. It has totally different values. Because when I think about Quok, I think about a company that's very value-driven. And you can see they come from you
1: yeah i i started this company in 2009 it, it was very naive you know i crash and burn on my first venture of starting a fashion label after graduating from saint martin with a friend you know we had the menswear label it was doing okay it was, we had some really nice boutique retailers stocking our, our, our wares but um after four years we closed it down because we just wasn't making it we was just up and down it was a roller coaster of every single season coming up with new ideas every six months. And now it's like it's not even six months. Now it's like Monday to Friday they can turn out a new collection, so to speak. <laughs> um, so after that, I, I kind of like went back to find out who I am and you know what I love. I love shoes and love cycling. And like I said, I started naively. I'm not a, a trained as a shoe cobbler. I I just had a love and passion for it. And the naivety come from I, I thought maybe visit some shops, seeing what's on the wall. Maybe I can do a better thing than that. You know, maybe coming from design school, that's something a bit more aesthetically more pleasing, instead of looking like more techy, racy product. That you know, like you know, every, all the shoes looking at the same as each other on the wall. And I want something a little different for myself that I was wearing around town, meeting friends for drinks, riding my bike, but being able to clip in, etc.
0: For the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into, just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel, and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike Adam it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio, and if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues, it just works every single time. The Atom is perfect for riding the Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25% if only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Witopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com now and check out their full range. We were talking about books off air before we press record. And there's a saying in literary circles that authors write the books that they wish they had available to them to read at that point. Do you think the same could be said for shoes that you created the shoe that you wish you had?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I. Every day, but at the same time, my sheer ignorance—that may, maybe—that's a positive thing. That I don't, I don't take a no for an answer, and I always think there's a way around things. You know, if I if I were to work with you know some supplier, or some, and I suggest some ideas, the people say no, you can't do this and you can't do that, and I've, I've proved them. You know, I've I've shown them, or tried constantly nagging them constantly. This way, eventually, they do, and and it, it, it can be done. So yeah, I tend to don't, you know, that's another personality about me. I, uh, I, I'm i not a race. I'm not, I don't do race. I love cycling. I love long distance cycling. I love riding my bike at night. But I'm not a UCI certified racer. I'm not one person. But I am competitive as anybody else and I will not give up. That's my character and that's why I'm so stubborn. The company has been around for like 14 years and, you know, we made so many mistakes or I have made so many mistakes that, you know, any sane person will just like pack it in by now. But I kept it going. Uh, I don't know why. Literally, I don't know why.
0: (laughs) I remember the first time I became aware of them. I one of my businesses that I started. It's actually the only one that still endures today. Behind the podcast, there's a cycling coaching company, and as part of the coaching company, we were creating video content. So I was creating these like online courses and like eight weeks to get faster on the bike. And that went quite well. And I remember having a mutual friend of David Miller and I reached out to him was like, hey, I want to create this time trial course, like how to time trial with David Miller. And surprisingly, he's like, okay, let's do it. And I was like, all right, this is pretty wild. David Miller wants to do a time trial course with me. And this was probably twenty in 2014. So I went over to Bristol and we filmed some stuff with David Miller and we went for a ride. And I pulled out my, you know, physique plastic dials on the side, sort of carbon shoes. And David pulled out this set of basically dress shoes, like a leather set of dress shoes. And I said to him, I was like, what are they? And he's like, quack. I was like, I've never heard of them. And he's like, look them up. That was my first experience of them. I'm like, whoa, these guys are doing something... Totally different. I suppose my question to you is I would have loved to make a set of cool shoes like that, but I don't have that skill set. Like, how back in 2009 did you go from having this idea? Like, how did you acquire the skills to make them? Because it's not your background, your background's fashion. Um,
1: yeah, but if, when I was doing fashion, I dipped my toe in a bit of shoes understand about, you know, just a little bit about last. I
0: like that, dip, dip your toe on the shoes. That's a nice expression.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to come out that way. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, uh, I have some basic understanding. And the thing is, when I closed down a company, I had four boxes of salesman sample that was production of the clothing left. That's all I had to my name. And I can't throw this away. I have to do something about it. I, I, have nothing, I haven't got a penny to my name. So I took out brick uh, Packing market, you know the, the Sunday weekend store. Where Saturday and Sunday on the, in East London they have the uh, the Sunday market, where you pay ninety bucks for a store. and um, you know I just sold apparel. I sold all the left stock I have left. And after one month, I had enough money to buy a ticket to Taiwan. At that time, my girlfriend is Taiwanese, and you know she, uh the whole. There's lots of manufacturing capability in Taiwan, and and at the time, I knew that I, I want to do uh, cycling shoes, so I just put a really simple design together: leather upper with a rubber sole. Very simple, a classic dress lass like a derby shoe kind of lass. Um, I bought a ticket to Taiwan, and then I just Google. my Google went to world, world, uh, Alibaba world uh, sourcing website, and just Google all the manufacturing, just cold stone email and look. I have a design, would you like, be interested to talk and meet up and etc.? nobody got back to me. except one guy <laughs> in Taichung. Uh, he got back to me and said, yeah, I'm happy to meet you. The next day I took the train to Taichung in the middle of Taiwan and I showed him my design. It's just a really simple leather shoe of lace, you know, really basic. I didn't know anything about, you know, heel cup, et cetera, and toe and, you know, carbon stiff. There's nothing like that. It was just Beautiful leather upper with a stiff rubber sole so that your shoe can slide in the toe and strap really elegantly and hard enough to power transfer, but a little bit flex in it so you can walk in comfortably off the bike. That, that was that. That was our first product. Uh, so he made for me five colors. I put it in the bag after one month, flew back to the UK. And again, I called up Convo Cycles, my first shop um which uh, i i got this um, new brand would you like to come like to see it and carl at the time was a, a software apparel buyer so come in at tomorrow 11 a.m So i was there opened my bag five colors and he just took the orders right there and then beautiful black and some tan shoes
0: and i did again
1: with five-hour shops and it all took order and i thought wow this is really amazing and then i took the weekend market sold some more clothes enough money to put another airline ticket to go back to the manufacturer present to my, him uh, my production order, which is 120 pairs.
0: <laughs> um, was he looking at you like thinking, well, this is going to be thousands of pairs"?
1: Yeah, he was like, I had to like plead with him, begged him, said, please, please support me. Just try it, <laughs> you know. Um, and then it just grew from then on. Uh, and then on, I just, the more I ride, the more I learn into it, uh, the more I have understanding. I visited the leather tanner in the UK I visit the only last factory left in the UK. So I learned everything from the factory floor with people and how they made my shoes in Taiwan and Italy. I just learned exactly every single process, how it was done, et cetera, et cetera. And I wear test the product. I improve I wear a wear on the product. And and that's how I learned. Learn on the on the on the go, Anthony.
0: So when you're over there and you're weighing up options for factories, like what makes a good factory? What are you looking for?
1: Back then I didn't have much choice. I was the only person I had okay uh so he was making beautiful dress shoes, and my shoe was leather, and he understand last, so it's a really good thing. he understands leather understand lasting and he uh, he was making handmade shoes, so our first What's lasting lasting is like a plastic mold that goes inside the shoes, so it's literally like a mold of the foot shape of the shoes, so all shoes is based around this cool thing called last, and if you get that right, let me just quickly go and get it for you um. Ah, I got hit behind me. I didn't want to move away, but this is the set of a lass. Ah, so cool. it's like a shape of the shoes. So this is like our DNA, our bread and butter. So it starts out with a classic lass, and over time I sculpted, I changed, made the toe box wider because it came from like a dress shoe lass. The toe box was really narrow, made it wider, changed the curvature at the bottom to, so or when you're on the pedal it's more supportive. So just constantly – Improvement every single year, making our last better, so our last is you know 100 percent original to us. When I start this company, it's like everything we do is 100 percent original. We start everything from, from from the last and we build outward as opposed to a, you know you can start a, a shoe brand of going to the factory buying an existing mold from the factory and changing fabrication, changing color, and you can have a new brand put your brand and using their tooling. But we didn't do that. We did the hardware and use our own tooling. So everything we do here, we invest in new technology ourselves. We open our old carbon outsole injection mold and we open from scratch for ourselves.
0: I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder Rob Gitellus on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment. But they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labor markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. My experience with cycling shoes is when I get a bad set, that's the only time I really notice a cycling shoe. And, I don't want to say I have a bad set at the moment, but my specialized S-Works road shoes, when I ride for six, seven hours in them, I get incredible hot foot. I'd done a 200 kilometer ride a few weeks ago and I was at the traffic lights coming back through Dublin city and I had to take my shoes off at the traffic lights. Like every traffic light I got to, I'd had to unwind them and take them off. Now, if I contrast that to my gravel shoe, which I use your old lace-up Grand Tourers I've never got hot foot in those. I rode 14 hours two days ago, a gravel ride. And I was carrying the bike, lifting the bike, walking in it all day. And even actually, this is a funny story. Last year, I went bikepacking with a friend and we started out in Granada and we rode to Biarritz and then across to Girona, over 2,000 kilometers. So we were riding 10 hours a day, but we were like 50 kilometers into day one. And on a descent... I lost my flip flops off the back of my bike packing setup. Stopped to look for them, just gone, nowhere to be found. So I was like, okay, well, that simplifies life. So I had to wear my quacks literally from the moment I woke up in the morning to the moment I went to sleep, including a night out in a Beer ritz nightclub, which lasted until probably 7am, where I was dancing in the shoes all night as well. And they were perfect. And not even just because it's you on the podcast, blowing Smoke Up Your Hole, they're a very, very comfortable shoe. I guess that leads me to, you know, what makes a good shoe? What's that trade-off between power transfer and comfort stiffness and flexibility how do you decide on those variables
1: well our dna has always been like it makes the most comfortable shoes shoes should be comfortable you know people talk about lightness stiffness and about performance but if you don't have comfort you're not going to ride long and you're not going to win races you now if you look at tour de france this year you know the tie is getting bigger you know wider you know 30 mil so and the handlebar, there's no more slamming in the stem, et cetera. So it's like, you know, the, the pro racers are opting for a more comfort position so they can, you know, more to optimize their performance more. So for us, it's always comfort is the key. We make sure our products are more, more comfort. The second thing is we don't tamper around too much with the the bottom of the foot. We're trying to keep it really natural because actually human, we're not supposed to wear shoes so the bottom curves, a lot of shoes, the, the curves are very different. Depend, you know depends on brand, but we're trying to keep it as natural as possible. And secondly, we're trying to keep the upper non-distracting in terms of not too many different fabrication, overlaying each other. It's a single one-piece upper, so less thing can go wrong and you can wipe it off. So the idea of our shoes is that it disappears underneath your feet. It sounds strange, but... The idea is that we eliminate all distraction from your footwear that you should enjoy your ride more. And that was our mission. It's, and it's still our mission now.
0: It makes total sense because, like, if I think about what is cycling for me or what is cycling for a lot of our listeners, cycling it's it's this sort of escape we have that allows us to progress both our physical and mental health. So tools that I use: a bike, shoes, a helmet they just facilitate that process i don't want them to be an end in themselves i don't want my helmet to be this thing i have to think about a lot i don't want my shoes to be an issue where i'm constantly wondering about my shoes i just want them to be like a second foot i want to just go and enjoy the physical and mental health benefits of riding my bike whether that's you know commuting into the city on my brompton or going bike packing on a gravel bike or a road racing i don't want the shoe is secondary to the experience
1: yeah that's, that's the thing right um most uh, somehow the market the whole industry has made it somehow shoe is really cheap you should ex- maybe not pay too much for a pair of shoes but if you think about this really there's three main contact point on a bicycle the most important is the pedal the foot to the pedal the second is the saddle the third is your contact point of the hands to the handlebars and but somehow there's not you know you pay the most you pay a very really expensive bike, or you can pay for a stem which costs about three hundred bucks. But yet, your skin power on a pair of shoe which costs the same price. But yet, that shoe will give you so much more enjoyment, or so much more enhance your whole experience on the bike than any other part. But yet, somehow the market, the whole industry, you know, discount and etc. makes the made how that the shoe is not so important, like secondary. But yet, when you're picking the bike, et cetera, apparel wise, your shoe should be the first consideration.
0: Did you anticipate the gravel boom or did you get lucky?
1: A bit of both. Uh, a, a bit of both in stand of we're already doing it with my friends, and I grow, riding my gravel bikes and going off-road uh, in the early days, but no one's doing something like that. Uh, of course, you can wear mountain bike, you know, shoes, no problem, but we designed a shoe that, like I said before, it was like you can wash off, no doubt it was laced because less thing can go wrong on a multi-day trip. And you, you know, the rubber needs to be more uh, grippy, but also comfort to hike and bike. So, basic, some three or four criteria in a product, and I didn't see it in other products. So, we decided to make specifically gravel cycling shoes, and we're the one of the first to focus at this discipline. So, yeah, a little bit about Anthony.
0: What's hilarious now is watching the big boys scrambling. Like you were positioned to capitalize on this boom because your shoes were. Not totally performance driven. They were comfort driven. They were function driven. They were style driven. Comfort, function, style is everything people want in gravel. No one's going out on a gravel ride counting their watts looking for performance. No one cares about stiffness of shoes or power transfer on gravel. It's about the experience. It's about the journey. So you'd position the company to capitalize on that perfect. And then you see the bigger brands like specialized which are all now scrambling to kind of copy your designs with lace-ups and going back to simplicity over performance. It must be pretty satisfying to watch the big boys scramble.
1: I don't really look at that. Like I said, I don't have a TV. I don't follow what's going on. Our mission is always like make the best product you can for our customer and that's it. So every single year, my team and I, we just constantly find a way to improve. Of course, it's nice when we have Eurobike shows and other brands coming up and asking us questions about this and that and taking a picture of our, our outsole. It's nice, but, you know, like for, for us, and one of our mission is that how do we encourage more people on bikes? It's, it sounds a bit, it's quite a big general goal, but it's always like that. It's like, if you can encourage or get more people on bikes, I think bike is such a powerful vehicle, a powerful tool that just enable everything. You know, like you said, fitness, health, mental health, green, etc. Um, maybe too much of people talk about it, but I still believe the more people bike, the, the better for everybody. But yeah, it's uh, we don't, I, I don't, we just constantly improving our product to give you the better experience on the bike, Anthony.
0: Yeah, the bike is such a simple, elegant solution to a really complex problems we have from health crisis to climate crisis to congestion crisis. It's such a simple answer.
1: Yeah, I... Um, so, on our website, I read this article where a scientist discovered if you plant trees in everything available for a space, you will revert global warming. It's that simple. Just plant trees. So, on our website, when you buy a pair of shoes, we donate a tree in your name. So, that's, a, that's something I'm passionate about. But also, I saw this article, I think Steve Jobs said it in the Scientific of America, Scientific Journal of America. The this, this study did on the efficient of, of, of things from A to B, an animal going A to B, the, the traverse. What is the most efficient, you know, it's human, a fish swimming A to B, a bird, etc. The most efficient animal on this planet is an eagle flying from A to B because he glides on the wind of a single stroke and flap with his wings. The human came third way down, but someone really smart in this, in this experiment, they gave a human a bicycle. And suddenly, the man and the bicycle is the most efficient from A to B. Period. Isn't that like the most inspiring thing ever? You no, know, like trying I love to that. encourage more people. That's so. That's that's uh, yeah. It's really inspiring me when I read that kind of thing.
0: And you know, there's a way we can travel through the world, be it on a bike or otherwise. We can travel through the world, and we can light a fire to everything behind us, or we can travel through the world as a lot of people who hike do. And they leave the trail a little bit better as they go. This is kind of built into your core value system where you're supporting projects like trash-free trails. How important is that being a positive impact on both the cycling and global ecosystem?
1: Um, you know, having a business, you've got to be more pollutant than as an individual. We try to minimize our impact as much as possible, like the project we do. The material in our product is we try to use as much as recycled as possible. There's a lot of greenwashing in there as well. So we always look about what is recycled, you know, how do they use it? But the simple thing is like we try to eliminate waste uh, in our product, the way we design things, the way we manufacture our product. But also we try to make a product that lasts longer than most. So the idea is that you keep your product much longer. That is, in, its, in itself, is a green story. It's if something lasts much more longer. Of course, we can't re-sole, re sole uh, of a pipe shoe as you would of a dress shoes. That's the downside of things. But we try to make it so it lasts a lot longer than any other product. You know, like for us, I mean, I fly a lot from my work. Of course, we are trying to find ways to offset that as much as possible. So for me personally, I ride my bike everywhere around town to meet in, et cetera. Yeah, yeah so it's just all our team rides. We try to minimize the impact. It's, it's, I don't know if it's worth talking about it, it is that we do it without thinking about it. And I think that if I talk anymore, I feel like maybe it's a bit of greenwashing. But I think it's super important to try to, like you said, leave a place better than how you come onto this earth. Um, I have a daughter, and I want her to grow up in a better environment how I you know, left it, so to speak.
0: How far off recycling shoes are we? Like, if I'm talking about my specialized shoes, if I send them back into you guys as I'm buying a new set of your road shoes, you know what value is that? Or how far away from building systems are we where you can reuse the material from old shoes like that?
1: It's, it's impossible. We can't. You, some company, Aldo in the past, where they collect your old shoes, you drop it off in one of their retail stores. And they, I don't know how they market it, but you have to think the infrastructure behind it. So, okay, what you're going to do with these old oh, shoes, you're going to have to ship it back to the original source of manufacturing. That means you have to send across the world again. And then someone using more energy to rip up the upper, rip up the outsole. Now, all this energy using of decomposing this shoe is, is more harmful than it is. It, it, it is. So how far away, I don't have an answer, but it's, it's like carbon. is like if you're talking about carbon frames and things like that, Carbon, once it exists on this earth, it will never ever degrade.
0: Yeah, it's a real problem. It's
1: it's a massive problem, and uh, I don't have the answer, Anthony. We try to do our best to minimise. Like I said, reduce as much waste in our production process as possible. We lower our defect rate as well, so we accept with more tolerance. Just little things like that. Of course, all our packaging is from recycled cardboard, etc. But at the moment, we can't take back shoes and tear off. If you tear off the outside, you rip the oil up and therefore the
0: shoe is destroyed. So what do you think is next? Not even in terms of sustainability, just in terms of manufacturing production. Is the uh, 3D printing going to be something the industry will consider and you'll consider?
1: Yes, there's 3D printing. Um, there's whole about marcellos and mushroom growing, particle mushroom, uh, making shoes, you know, making shoes from this mushroom fabric, etc. cetera. Uh, there's that. But the infrastructure is not there yet. You have the growing mushroom and, the the so the fabric's super expensive you know if we were to make the shoes from this new fabric, it will cost you about five hundred pounds for a pair of bike shoes. Would you pay for five hundred pounds so it's like it's a it's a it's a juggling act right Most of the time we have to rely on the big boys nike adidas now once they buy the material they there's infrastructure there, so we can pick it back up them to use that fabric they're using on our product so unless they adapt uh, it's hard for a small someone like us.
0: To make that big initiative change, so we're waiting for Nike to make the Nike Air mushrooms.
1: Yeah, there's some company using <laughs> you know luxury uh, fabric. They use some bags, and you know that Hermes use a little bit on their on their bag using mushroom fabrics. But uh, it's still it's quite a long way. We're trying to find ways to to, like I said, work with what you have. So we design the most efficient shoes. We're trying to make the product last much longer and we work with our factory closely to minimize waste.
0: Quack, it's a fascinating story of overcoming of the small guy sticking into the big guys. I'm already riding the gravel shoes. I absolutely love them. I highly encourage everyone listening to the podcast to go and check out Kwok because it's an amazing story, but it's an even better brand. Kwok, thank you very much for joining me today on the Roadman Podcast. Thank you very much, Anthony.